Rico. Well, let's take our Bibles tonight. We're doing good on time. Second Samuel four. Let's stand for the reading of the scripture. Second Samuel four. For those of you new to the church or new to Sunday night service, we are in a series from Second Samuel, and uh, just something that the Lord's been kind of working my heart about on this passage. And we're just going to kind of keep preaching through Second Samuel, and hope to be a blessing to you, and hope to help you. You need some notes for some of this to help you. We're going to try to take some Bible precepts and truths as we go through the series to help you in, in, in the Lord there. Now, if someone around you doesn't have a King James Bible, would you help them and share your Bible with them, make sure they know exactly where we're at, and we just want tonight to be a blessing and to glorify the Lord. Second Samuel 4, say amen if you're there. Amen. Verse 5, and the sons of Rimen, the Barathite, Rechab, and Baaneth, they went and came about the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth, who lay on a bed at noon. And they came thither into the midst of the house as though they would have fetched wheat. And they smote him under the fifth rib, and Rechab and Baanah, his brother, escaped. And when they came into the house, he lay on his bed in his bedchamber, and they smote him and slew him and beheaded him and took his head and got him away through the plain all night. And they brought the head of Ishbosheth unto David to Hebron, and said to the king, Behold the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, thy enemy, which sought thy life. And uh, the Lord has avenged my lord, the king, this day of Saul and of his seed. And David answered Rechab and Baanah, his brother, the sons of Rimen, the Barathite, and said unto them, As the Lord liveth, who has redeemed my soul out of all adversity, when one told me, saying, Behold, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good tidings, I took hold of him and slew him in Ziglag, who thought I would have given him a reward for, such, for his tidings. How much more, when wicked men have slain a righteous person in his own house upon his bed, shall I not therefore now require his blood of your hand and take you away from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they slew them, and cut off their hands and their feet, and hanged them up over the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the sepulcher of Abner in Hebron. And this evening we're going to look at this subject here, this passage, and just see what the Lord has for us tonight in our series we're preaching from, The King is Come. Now, Father, tonight I thank you for the tenderness and the greatness of your mercies. Thank you for a good attendance this morning of folks that came and the Word of God that was preached and lives were encouraged today. And we thank you for sustaining us and thank you for loving us through your word. And thank you, Lord, that uh, this is a church, even as I walked in and our congregation was singing, since Jesus came into my heart. I really believe there were some people singing tonight that they really meant it. They really just are rejoicing when Jesus came in their heart. And quite honestly, Lord, if Jesus wasn't in our life, we'd be in a big mess. And we'd be on the way to hell and things would be so bad. But thank you when Christ came to our heart, a series of transactions occurred. And we thank you that because of that, we know with, that, with absolute certainty, heaven's our home. We're sons of God. Our sins are forgiven. And God, that you're our heavenly father and much more. Now tonight, we need to hear from you. I need strength from above. I need the Spirit's enablement. God, even if Jesus came to the disciples on that first evening service and he said, receive ye the Holy Ghost, the Bible says he breathed on them. I need tonight that you breathe it through me and tonight that you breathe upon your people to be good receivers of the word of God, especially as we look beneath the surface here at the at probably one of the main topics that's found in this passage that is very meaningful and necessary for our Christian life as we look at declaring the whole counsel of God. As we're reminded today that we're to uh, that precept upon precept and line upon line. And so tonight we just pray that 
your, your word would be lifted up in our hearts, Christ would be lifted up, and that, uh, that we would let the word of Christ dwell in us richly in all wisdom to the glory of God. Bless the service tonight. May perhaps just one thing be said that would help someone who's going through a time of decision-making and trial and difficulty tonight that will help us. And we'll thank you for these things, Lord, tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We're in a study of, the, of a series entitled, The King Has Come. First Samuel, David was not on the throne. We're ta- we had entitled that, The King Is Coming. And now in Second Samuel, The King Has Come. David's on the throne. As we go to Second Samuel 4, uh, David is king only over Judah. All of Israel was in the process of coming to him, but they had not come to him. And so by way of review, we need to look at a few things of what we've looked at leading up to Second Samuel 4. In Second Samuel, Second Samuel 1, we see a memorial service. In this memorial service, David is the one leading the service and giving a lamentation for King Saul for the death of Saul. And the title of his message was, How Are the Mighty Fallen? In 2 Samuel 2, we see the men of Jabesh Gilead being acknowledged by David for valiantly recovering the bodies of David, of, of Saul and his three sons who died on the battlefield. And he gave them honor for what they did. And that was remarkable because we saw the first mention of the men of Jabesh Gilead was that these were men that were passive, men that were indifferent, men that were not involved. Because of that, uh, many of their men were slain back in Judges. And now they've recovered from that. And we see men going from passivity to passion and great passion. And they're acknowledged here. And, of course, that just speaks to our hearts about the important that God does acknowledge our fervency and passion and desire to serve him. Then we got again to 2 Samuel 2 and 3, and we highlighted uh, the captain of Saul's host, a man by the name of Abner. Abner had been under the, pretty much a follow Saul, who was his cousin, for, for 40-something years. And then he took Saul, one of Saul's son, a weak son, by the name of Ishbosheth. And Ishbosheth was a very weak son. He was basically a puppet king and decided that this is going to be the man I'm going to follow. And for 42 years, Abner had been following the wrong king. He'd been following the wrong man. But Abner along the way, was his eyes were open. He was awakened the fact he'd been, he'd been following the wrong king. And we saw in our study about Abner that Abner made a right choice and decision. And he pledged all his loyalty to David as a picture of just getting his, his allegiance right and, and, and making that decision before he left his life. And, and just the thought we gave in that message that at least he made the right decision before it was too late there. And uh, we thank the Lord that he gives us that opportunity of making the right decisions before it's too late. And then we saw, last time we were in Second Samuel, we saw one of Joab's brothers, the youngest brother, Asahel, who was chasing after Abner, trying to kill Abner, before Abner had made his allegiance pledge. And we saw where Asahel's name means God made. And it was reminded to us that God has made us and he's created us for a time and purpose. And we're to take our responsibilities very greatly for the Lord there. And we saw where Asahel was that he was fast and a fast runner and he was moving quickly in his life. And you can say that maybe he moved so fast he was he was he was uh, oblivious to to the commands of God. But you might also look at the fact that he didn't give his life in vain. He, He gave his life serving his king there. Now, we're in Second Samuel four tonight. In 2 Samuel 4, we see four characters. Character number one, we're going to see Ishbosheth, the puppet king. This is the last time we're going to sing Ishbosheth. Character number two is we're going to see David, who is the rightful king, but all of Israel had not yet acknowledged him. And this is important to understand that, that all of Israel had not acknowledged David at that time. And then we're going to see these two men we just read about, who just only are seen one time in Scripture. This man by the name of Baana and his brother Rechab, two brothers who were Benjamites, Two brothers who uh, were captains over bands. And this evening we're going to look at 2 Samuel 4 and see a number of truths that are brought on this passage. 
For instance, tonight, we're going to see the problem of indecision and how indecision can be very fatal to us in the Christian life. And I say that tonight because maybe some of us are standing, we're straddling the fence and we haven't made up our minds about Jesus. We haven't made up our mind about church membership. We haven't made up our mind about getting saved. And we're going to see how indecision can be very fatal for us. We're going to see another topic or another truth here tonight. We're going to see the problem of indiscretion. And how if we don't choose rightly, that how reckless thinking can get us into trouble. Bayana and Recup represent to us this matter of indiscretion and wrong thinking. And then we're going to see the problem of insubordination. And how lack or misuse of submission can lead to serious ramifications. Bayana and Recup thought in their mind, as David even said, they thought in their mind they were submitting to David's leadership. But they were submitting to David's leadership and under their own terms because they sought a reward. They sought to be acknowledged. They thought we're going to get a reward by bringing the head of Ishbosheth over to David and showing him that we were, were, were for David. And you have to remember, just as a way of prelude tonight, that Abner had already set in motion previously in chapter 3 to have all of Israel come to him. We'll look at that in a moment. But he had already set in motion for all of Israel to come to David there. And you have to remember, David is a type of Christ whenever we see him here in this passage here. Now, as we look at that, we're going to look at some questions. And this is kind of of something we're just, you know, we kind of feel like as we start message, we need to start off by saying, okay, where are we going with the message? And where do we want to end up on the message? So we're going to ask some questions because questions convict statements of so I want you to think with me tonight about some of the questions. Questions that we're going to look at tonight are, number one, what is submission? What do we mean by submission? You know, we hear the word submission, but what do we really mean submission? Okay, that's number one. Number two, then there's the, the, the question that comes with that is, how am I supposed to submit? And that's a good question. We need to ask a question. How am I supposed to submit? If there's a precept in the Bible, if there's a principle about submission, how am I supposed to submit? Or why am I supposed to submit? And then question number three, why is it that our nature is that it's difficult for us to submit? And we'll talk about that in just a minute as we see from these men tonight. And question number four is, what is the blessing of submission? If I am submissive, according to the Bible, as we look at the definition, what is the blessing associated with submission? Now, those are the questions I want to park with you tonight. I want you to be thinking about that as we go through this, because we're going to have to kind of just start from backwards and unbundle the passage and kind of talk about what's going on there and just to build it up to understand. And then we're going to go back to look at this matter of submission. What is submission? How do I submit? Why do I have difficulty submitting? And what is the blessing of submission? So would you notice the following with me tonight? Number one, there's two things tonight. Number one, I want you to notice with me in this passage, the undermining plot. The undermining plot. Abner, in chapter 3, realizes he made a mistake in establishing Ishbosheth as king. Now, I think all of us, as we go through the Christian life, we, you know, we're learning how to make Jesus Lord of our life. And we're learning that Christ should be number one. And for some Christians, it's not a struggle. Other Christians, it's a struggle. You know, there are just a myriad of things that could be in the way there. And Abner, for 42 years, just was oblivious to the fact that Saul and now Ishbosheth were the wrong king. His eyes were open. He realized it was the wrong thing. Now, go back to chapter 3 with me. Abner now pledges his full 100% support to David. Go back to me, chapter 3, and notice some things that, that, they, that Abner does here, if you would. In verse 19, Abner, the Bible says this, 
Uh, actually, verse 70, go with me to verse 17. And Abner had communication, chapter 3, verse 17. Abner had communication with the elders of Israel saying, you sought for David in times past to be king over you. Now, he already knew there was a, there was a contagion, contingency of people that already knew that David's the rightful king. He knew that. And they wanted to follow David, but they were scared of Saul. Saul was a king who led by intimidation. Saul was a king who basically his attitude was, do it my way or else. And so he knew about that, and so Saul is dead. And so verse 17 says, he goes to the elders of Israel. These are the, these are the older men. These are the decision makers. These are the men that carry weight. These are the men that if they say something, the people say, okay, we believe what they have to say is right. They were recognized as men that were spiritual and men that had prudence there. So verse 17 says, ye sought for David in times past to be king over you. Look what he says here. Now this is, this is the captain of the entire host of Israel standing on a platform and putting his whole reputation on the line. And he says, now then, do it. He says, don't make delay. I mean, he's basically, he's putting his name on the line. He's saying, I want you to give your pledge to David. Now then, do it. For the Lord has spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel out of the hand of the Philistines and out of the hand of all their enemies. Notice verse 19. And Abner also spake in the ears of Benjamin, and Abner went also to speak in the ears of David in Hebron. All this seemed good to, to Israel, and all this seemed good to the whole house of Benjamin. Now watch progressively what he's doing there. He goes to the elders, which is important. Now he goes to the entire house of Benjamin. Why? Because the ben- Saul was a Benjamite. And this is the smallest tribe in Israel. He's going to the Benjamites and he speaks to all of them because they're kind of wondering, well, where do we fit in all of this? How does this all come about? And there were those Benjamites who were to have family relations to Saul and they're kind of upheaval right now. What do we do? Do we have an heir? And we'll look at that in just a minute. So he goes to them and he speaks to the men. Of, uh, to, uh, the Bible says he spoke that which was good to the whole house of Benjamin. Okay, So Benjamin's on board. Uh, the, the elders on board. Notice verse 20. So Abner came to David to Hebron and 20 men with he took 20 chosen men. Now, the question we don't know is who were those 20 men? They were movers and shakers. They were probably men who were part of the military there. We don't know who they were. I will tell you this. So as we look at that verse, Baana and Rechab knew this meeting was going on. All of the military men, they knew this meeting was going on. The whole intent of Abner was to bring all of Israel to David. Their intent was to get them to pledge all their allegiance, their loyalty, to submit themselves to David and say, listen, we can't have a divided kingdom. We can't have a divided family. We've got to make this, we've got to recognize God has his hand on David. God wants this man to be the king. He already designated that many years ago, you know, 17, 17, 15, 17 to 20 years ago. We've got to make David king. This is what we're going to do. We've got to get everybody on bent on the Benjamin side and Israel side on board with it. So the Bible says in verse 20 of chapter chapter 3, So Abner came to David to Hebron, and 20 men with him. And David made Abner and the men that were with him a feast. And Abner said to David, look at verse 21. I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to my Lord the king, that they may make a league with thee, and that thou mayest reign over all that thy heart desire. Now Abner did have no idea he was going to be assassinated and killed by Joab. He had no idea Joab would come back later on in this chapter we saw last time, that Joab would come, would come and stab him in the back and kill him, or stab him under the fifth rib and kill him. He didn't know that Joab was going to take vengeance on him at that moment in time. All Abner had in his heart, the purity of his heart was, 
I know I made a mistake. I was following the wrong king. I need to get, I need to do my part in bringing all of Israel to David. Now, I want to tell you tonight, that's commendable. I mean, that's a commendable spirit. He didn't want to see a divided kingdom. He wanted to see a united kingdom. He wanted to see the people drawn together. They'd be, they, he'd realized that they'd been under this, 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 this ominous, this terrible, uh, intimidating, oppressive, uh, type of leadership of Saul. And they said, you know, David's not that kind of man. And Abner put his reputation, everything on the line. He basically said, I'm not I'm not ashamed of David. I'm not ashamed of giving my pledge to David. I'm not doing this for military reasons. I'm not doing it for promotion because he already knew Joab was his general and he knew that David was not going to demote Joab in, in favor of Abner. He just said, I'm going to come and whatever David wants to do with me, praise the Lord. That's great. Great for that. So Abner has things in motion. He's already told all of Israel, we need to come to David. Now watch this tonight. Right after he says, verse 21, he's killed right before he carries us out. Now you have to imagine if you're a, if you're an Israelite who's part of the tribe of Benjamin, what is going through your mind when that happens? Now you're thinking, wow, you know, uh, we're supposed to follow Abner. Abner's killed. Do we still go through with this? What do we do? And there are people like the Bayanas and the Rechabs who had not made up their mind concerning this. So notice the undermining plot. I want you to notice a spotlight here in this first point that where the spotlight of the scripture, the spotlight of the Holy Spirit is at tonight. First of all, the spotlight is back on Ishbosheth. Go to chapter four, verse one. Now, remember, death had occurred. Abner was dead. David gave a great memorial service for Abner. He basically said, look. I want all of Israel to know I had nothing to do with this death. I did not murder him. This was not of me. This was the treachery that was committed by by the son by by Joab and 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 uh, and his other brother. And you got to bear in mind now as we read through Second Samuel, there's a lot of treachery that goes on in this chapter, and there's a lot of submission and disloyalty factors we see in there. There's a lot of parenting things we're going to see, a lot of family things that go on, a lot of intrigue on that. And so as this happens, they've given a proper burial in chapter three <coughs> to Abner. But there's these Benjamites that are they're still kind of like, okay, where's this going? Because as Abner was doing this, his whole intent was just to get everybody, including Ishbosheth, to get them over to be submissive to David so that the whole kingdom be brought together. That's a good thing. Now notice chapter four, spotlights on Ishbosheth. First thing we read, when Saul's son heard that Abner was dead in Hebron, his hands were feeble and all the Israelites were troubled. The spotlight goes back on Ishbosheth because there were some people that now they're paralyzed, they're indecisive, they're thinking, now wait a minute. Abner's dead. What do we do? And their eyes are back on, 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 on Ishbosheth. Look at chapter 4, verse 1 says, Ishbosheth, the Bible says that Ishbosheth at that moment in time, his hands were feeble. He was paralyzed with fear. And the Bible says the Israelites were troubled. Listen, he was an insecure man just like his father Saul was. Insecure leadership breeds insecure followers. Moms and dads, if you, are, if you have insecurities you haven't given to the Lord, you're going to carry that down to your, your kids. The bad things our kids get from us most of the time come from our insecurities. And here's an insecure leader where the Bible says his hands were feeble. He didn't know what to do. He was indecisive. When you read the rest of the chapter here, what, are, what do we find Ishbosheth doing? We read the rest of the chapter at a time when he should have stood up and made a stand and gone to David. All we read about Ishbosheth from that moment on is that when it came to noontime, he made sure he took his midday nap. That's what we read about him. He went back to his house and retired every day at noontime and he took his nap there. I mean, that's the biggest thing we read about him. I mean, we have a kingdom right now that's in chaos. The kingdom needed to move over 
over to David. They needed to give their pledge to David. And it stopped now because people were wondering, well, where's our leadership? Where's the leadership? Ishbosheth was not a leader. He was a puppet king. And the Bible says his hands were feeble and all of Israel was troubled. They looked at him and said, well, if he's not going to move, we're not going to move. Hey, listen tonight. That speaks so clearly to you and I. We cannot put our eyes on people about Jesus Christ. We've got to get our eyes on Jesus alone. You get your eyes on the wrong person, that person can, can mislead you into making a, a wrong decision. So we see this man, Ishbosheth, he's indecisive, he's insecure, he cannot make his mind up. Uh, he knew he was Saul's heir, but he was not the rightful king. He was indecisive about the situation. Notice the second thing tonight. The spotlight's on Ishbosheth. Notice the spotlight's on the kingdom. And what condition is the kingdom in? I gave you a little insight of it. It's a little bit worse than that. <clears throat> All of Israel's trouble. Why was Israel trouble? Watch how the first five verses unfolds as the condition of the kingdom. First of all, the house of Saul no longer held the esteem of the people. Saul was dead. So now you look at the king's dead. What about his heirs? Because that's what they did. They said, what about the heirs? Who, who are the heirs going to come into place? Okay, notice this here. Write this down. Heir number one was Jonathan. Jonathan was dead. There was an heir that was dead. Jonathan should have been the next king. Jonathan's dead. And his two other brothers, they're dead. They're, they died on the battlefield. They've already been buried. So heir number one is dead. Heir number two. Heir number two is Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth was dysfunctional. He didn't have it together. Best, the best, the only thing we read about him in chapter four, his hands were feeble and he took his midday nap every day. Heir number three. Heir number three we find introduced here so we can understand the context of the situation. Mephibosheth here in verse four. Look at verse four. And Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son that was lame on his feet. Now he would have been a rightful heir because he was the son of Jonathan. He was, he was lame on his feet. He was five years old when the tidings came of Saul and Jonathan out of Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And it came to pass, as she made haste to flee, that he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Now, God wanted us to kind of park on Mephibosheth because he's going to come back later on in chapter 9. And, if, and after that, and that's a whole different message there. So because we're going to take all those chapters together. And he's such a blessing to us as we speak about the grace of God in Mephibosheth's life. But notice this. Mephibosheth is there number three. Air number one is dead. Air number three, number two is dysfunctional. Air number three is disabled. Now, they're not going to have a disabled king on the, on the throne. He can't walk. He needs somebody to help him out. He's lame. He's five years old. He's got crooked legs. He's all messed up. They didn't have orthopedists during those days to fix your legs and things like that. He's all messed up. So the kingdom's in a mess. All of Israel's trouble because they've got a, they've got a king, a puppy king on the throne who can't make a decision. The worst thing is people that already knew what they're supposed to do because Abner told them in chapter three, verse 21, they're not making that decision. So we see the situation with the plot, the plot of the whole situation here in, 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 in the kingdom was all upside down at that moment of time. Israel was troubled. They didn't know what to do. Listen, if you don't know what you're doing, the people that are following you don't know what you're do- they're doing. If you don't give vision for your children, your children don't know what they're going to do with their life. If we don't have vision for the church, we're not going to know what to do. Hey, the Bible says where there is no vision, the people perish. So the kingdom's not in good state at that moment of time. People wanted an admiral to make the decision for them. Some of us are in a place of life tonight, and maybe a lot of young people, where you need somebody else to make that decision for you. That's a good thing. But I'm going to tell you tonight for this Sunday night crowd, we need to get to the place where the Bible is at about our decision. We have to remind ourselves, we need to choose you this day whom you'll serve. 
We need to remind ourselves today how long ought you between two opinions. If the Lord be God, follow him. If Baal be God, follow him. Hey, we've got to be like Jesus when he, when he approached those people that came to him. Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which, my, which I say? Now listen to me tonight. We need to move ourselves. I'm talking to young people tonight, maybe new Christians. We need to move ourselves from a codependency upon someone else's coattails and making our decisions and realize God wants us to have convictions about making decisions about Jesus Christ. Listen, you're never going to go farther for Christ if you're always hanging on to somebody else's coattails. It's time to let go of the coattails, hang on to Jesus, and wherever Jesus takes you, you just go and follow Him. Amen? Now notice spotlight number three. The spotlight's on Ishbosheth. The spotlight in chapter one in this chapter is on, on the kingdom condition. But notice the spotlight's on the two captains of bands in Saul's army. Now the Bible wanted to specifically know they were captains of bands. They had people that followed them. They enjoyed being in leadership capacity. They enjoyed giving orders. They enjoyed having subordinates. They were captains of bands. They were also brothers. They were, they were, they had position and rank. They had authority over men. They knew, all the military knew under, that was part of Benjamin. They knew that, that Abner had already given the injunction and told everyone, we need to move over to David. We need to come to David so that we can have the blessing of God on it. But these two men, as we see this, watch what happens here. The Bible tells us, beginning verse 5, going all the way down to verse 10, these men had a different idea. Now remember, they're thinking in their mind, Abner's gone. The elders have made their decision. The men of Benjamin made their decision. But all of Israel's trouble. Nobody's come over yet. The kingdom's kind of just in a halt here. Benjamin's in a halt. It's still the men of Judah that are still have recognized David as, as king. And they don't have a problem with that. So these two men rise up. And they're saying, well, somebody's got to do something here. So they want to set something in motion. They want to come to David under their own terms. They want to come to David with this idea that we're going to come to David. And we're going to get, we're going to get a reward. And we're going to come to David. And he's going to recognize that he's going to see us as being submissive to him and they're going to see us as being that that we're, we're reclaiming him as rightful king so what these men do they conspire to go to the house of Ishbosheth on a noontime and uh with the pretense that they were going to fetch some wheat out of the king's house and uh Ishbosheth, for whatever reason didn't have a lot of bodyguards and a lot of protection around him during that time and while he was laying in his bed and nobody outside the door to protect him they came with this pretense they came to get wheat they told somebody that and they came in and the bible tells us they went up to Ishbosheth, and while he was on his bed they took a knife they knifed him under the fifth rib and killed him instantly. And while they did that, they said, we need to bring back an evidence that we've taken the enemy of David uh, 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 by, by our own hands. And they beheaded him, which is gruesome and terrible in itself. They beheaded him. They carried his head. And the Bible says they went through the plains all the night. Listen, for all that night, all they talked about, you can imagine the situation. They were talking about why they carried the head of this, this poor puppet king in their bag. They're talking about, I wonder what kind of reward David's going to give us. I wonder how David's going to acknowledge. I wonder how David's going to tell all the kingdom how great our submission is and how great this is all about there and so they're going with this idea this pretense that david's going to be pleased with their action there and um, they arrived there on that morning the bible tells us there that he, they arrived this morning to hebron and they go to david and i want you to look at me with the words that they said to david in verse 8 and they brought the head of ishbosheth in chapter 4 verse 8 they brought the head of ishbosheth unto david to hebron and said to the king behold the head of ishbosheth the son of saul that enemy now what they're making some they're making they're, they're they're making some judgment calls here that never came out of David's mouth. David never called Saul his enemy. 
He called Saul the enemy of the Lord, but he never called Saul his enemy. In fact, if anything, if you remember back back in 1 Samuel, he had an opportunity to take Saul out, and he didn't take Saul out. And so these men come with this idea, and they're basically putting some words, inserting some things. They're, they're, they're putting some, uh, some, some descriptions here that never came out of David's mouth. And they said, Behold the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, thy enemy, which sought thy life. And that's true. That's true about that part, which sought thy life. And notice what they said here. The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, this day of Saul and his seed. In other words, they had conspired as they were going. They're exactly what they were going to say to David. How they were going to make this presentation. How they're going to show they came in as ruthless mercenaries. But they, 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 they kind of whitewashed or sugarcoated their description. They said, you know, God used us to take your enemy out. And they said, behold his head right now. And we want you just to know the Lord has avenged my Lord, the king. As if God had commissioned them to... To do that against uh, against Ishbosheth, and Ishbosheth there, David looks at this. David doesn't even blink an eye. In verse nine and ten, David said, looks to them and he says, "As the Lord liveth, who has redeemed my soul out of all adversity, he's saying, listen, you guys think taking a a carnal." And a secular approach to coming to me by taking off the head of the enemy, uh, you're, who you thought was my enemy, you behead him, and you're coming thinking that you're doing me a favor. He said, I want you guys to know something right in front. God took care of me during those seven, those 13 years I was out there and Saul was coming after me. And we have the record of that all through the Psalms, wherever David writes about that. And he says, he says, look at, as the Lord liveth, he says, who has redeemed my soul out of all adversity. By the way, that's a good thought for you and me. When you go through adversity, the Lord's alive, he's going to get you out of your adversity, amen? And so here's the situation here. David's saying, guys, I got to tell you something. The Lord's alive. God is not dead. The Lord's living. He's gotten me out of all these adversities here. And he, and he reminds him back just a few weeks before when a, an Amalekite came and said that he killed Saul, thinking that he would get a reward. He says, you, and he said, and he says here in verse 10, this one man, he said, he said in verse 10, behold, Saul is dead. Notice. Thinking to have brought good tidings, I took hold of him and slew him in Ziglag, who thought I would have given him a reward for his tidings. Now, these men were just like that Amalekite. They were thinking and they convinced themselves they were going to get a reward. They thought it was good news that this was happening. And yet they didn't recognize that David, who is a type of Christ, that David didn't see it that way. David was holy. David was righteous. David displays righteousness as a king. And by the way, this was very critical at this time in David's kingdom that the people need to see they had a just king and not an unjust. King. Now, I don't have time to go in it, but if you have some time to correspond with this, because I don't have time with this tonight. If you read through Proverbs 26, 27, 28, 29, it'll give you insight. And this is probably what the Lord used in putting this, this thought into, into Solomon's mind. With 20, Proverbs 26, 27, 28, 29. David deals with all this, this, this treachery that, 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 that uh, Solomon talks about all the treachery that these men commit. And he talked about what is a righteous king and exercising good judgment and things of that nature. It's a good thing for us to follow, especially if we have influence over other people there. And so David tells him, listen, listen, if you thought that, that, listen, I took that man's life, and he said in verse 11, how much more when wicked men have slain a righteous person in his own house upon his bed, shall I not therefore now require his blood of your hand and take away from the earth? Now David had a different perspective. David said, wait a minute. Ishbosheth, I was not his enemy, and he calls him a righteous person. He said, you took the life of an innocent man. You murdered a man in cold blood. You took his head. You thought that you were pleasing me and pleasing God by coming in that, in, under that pretense there. So we see these men here. They come with the idea of we're going to give our pledge to David. 
But the end of the end, the end of the day, they realized this plan backfired. That's not how David received it. We see an undermining plot. We see a plot by these men thinking that they're showing a perspective of submission that David would approve. Now, that's the undermining plot. That's the background. Now, I want you to notice point number two, which is our last point. Would you watch this tonight? Please don't miss this. I had to give you all this back. Are you with me tonight? I want you to see not just the plot, but I want you to see in this passage the precept. And while you're there, put your finger in 1 Peter chapter 2. In fact, turn to 1 Peter 2. There is an unequivocal precept in this. By that I mean there's an absolute Bible precept. You cannot change this. You cannot rewrite it. There's an absolute precept. Please don't miss this tonight. What I'm going to tell you will help your marriage. What I'm going to tell you will help you as a child struggling with submitting to your, to, your, to your parents. What I'm going to tell you tonight will help you maybe in your job. What I'm going to tell you tonight, if you've got some trouble with the government on things, we'll help you there. What I'm going to tell you tonight might help you in terms of your relationship with people in the church. Or I want you to see the precept. What is that precept, Pastor? Number one, the precept is this matter of submission. Now, we're going to look at the subject submission for the remainder of this message to understand what exactly does 2 Samuel 4 have to say about this, okay? Submission is one of many biblical precepts. Submission, write this down, submission is a code of conduct. Society is upside down and churches are dysfunctional if we don't have proper biblical submission. Submission is a behavioral necessity for holy functionality in all relationships. That's why Paul is speaking about the spirit-filled life in Ephesians 5. He says, he says, and be not drunk with wine where it is excess, but be filled with the Spirit of God. And then he goes down from there and he says, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of the Lord. Submission is a biblical, is a behavioral necessity for holy functionality in all relationships. Submission is loyalty in action. So notice with that being said tonight, as we look at this precept, I want you to notice some things about submission. And we're going to find this in this passage here tonight. Letter A, I want you to consider me the principle of submission. Let's look at the principle. In 1 Timothy 2, verses 13, all the way to chapter 3, probably to about verse 11 or so, Peter takes painstaking time to unravel for us and describe to us Biblical submission. Now, when you read through Paul's writings, who wrote many epistles, Paul unbundles this matter of submission in different ways. He talks about submission, for instance, in Romans 16. He talks about submission, for instance, in Romans 12. He talks about submission, uh, you, you might find in 1 Timothy. I mean, he has a different place he talks about in Ephesians 5. He talks about in Romans chapter 13. There's different essences of, of, of submission that Paul deals with. But as you go to Peter, Peter, because he was not, to, he was not destined of God, or point of God, to write as many epistles, he takes time to a very similar group of people as Paul wrote to, and which is just like you and me, to describe to them these matters, these, these matters, the principle of submission. And so in chapter 2, verses 13, to chapter 3, verse 11, we have a baseline of what submission is. Now, let's talk about, first of all, what does the word submission mean? Now, the word submission, if you've been around church, you've heard me say this, but let me describe it to you again. The Greek word for submission is the word hupotasso, okay? Now, hupo, H-U-P-O, means something that's under. Is always talking about putting something under something else. Hupotasso is talking about coming under the rank. Now, here's what it means here tonight. Hupotasso is a military term. 
Everybody in the first century that was Grecian or part of the Greek culture or Roman, they understood the word hupotasso. When they were speaking Greek, they said the word submission was used. They understood it. The word submission, hupotasso, is used 40 different times in the New Testament. It's interchangeably the word submission or subjection or subject to. And sometimes it might have a twist there when it turns a subject. Even sometimes the word obey could be used for the word hupotasso. But hupotasso is a very important word. Listen to some of the meanings that go along with this, okay? Uh, hupotasso, submission... Words that are synonymous with submission are to put myself under, to arrange under. In other words, it's talking about organization, to arrange myself under something, under the rank of someone else. Uh, Hupatasso means to put oneself under the authority, the laws, the instructions, or leadership of another person. Let me say that again. Hupatasso, submission, means to put oneself under the authority, the laws, the instruction, or the leadership of another person. So it means to put under, to arrange under, to obey to submit to one's control. Or I like this word. I like this word. Listen. To yield. Now you think with me tonight as you leave the church, if it's you drive home where you have to go, when you come to a yield sign. A yield sign, you come to a yield sign, you stop there to yield the right of way to other traffic. Why are you doing that? It was put there so that basically to avoid the problem of a head-on collision or someone getting injured there. We have a yield sign. Yield means to give the right of way. Yield has the idea of a courteous submission. Courteously, I'm allowing someone else to have the right of way. I'm exercising courteousness under that pretext, under that context there. So he's saying to yield. I like that usage of the word. And when we know that we're yielding, when we yield to something or someone, we're making maintaining civility and preventing a head-on collision accident or problem from happening there. Now, submission is a courteous means, as I said earlier, of recognizing authority and leadership. Submission is a command, a law, a rule, a direct responsibility. And I'll give you an example. I got, I got, I got, I got uh, Justin, Jennifer, and Stephen and Susanna together as we were, were getting ready. We're prepping, getting together, working, working on this, on this missions trip. And Susanna speaks fluent Spanish. Justin speak, can preach in Spanish. He's not like our Spanish brethren, but he could preach and he did a great job. And people got saved on the day he preached there. But listen, when we got there, I said, now guys, now listen, today when we come to Bible Baptist Church Iglesia, Bible Baptist Church of Guadalupe, Pastor Bordell is the pastor of the church. We are in submission to him. Whatever he asks us to do, that's what we're going to do. And so when we were there reverently before his congregation, I never called Brother Bordell, Brother Bordell. I always called him Pastor Bordell. I wanted his congregation to see that because of visiting pastor, I'm in submission to his leadership as he's following the Lord. And I wanted his people to see that. And I made sure as his, his, co- his uh, assistant pastors, I made sure as a staff and myself, we made sure that we came to them as with a servant's heart. We came there to serve them. And we said, whatever you need us to do, however, However late you want us to stay, however early you want us to be there, we are going to be there to get done whatever wants to be done. And so we came there with the courteous of expecting to do that. Listen, even the people that drove us around, and we had so many wonderful brothers and sisters in Christ that drove us all around Costa Rica to different destinations and things for, for ministry. We made sure that we recognized that we put ourselves in submission to those people as servants of the Lord. Not that they were ruling over us, but we wanted them to understand that we, we, we came there to serve the Lord. Now that's a good thing. We're yielding ourselves to someone in that capacity there. Submission is a command. Man, a law, a rule, a direct and responsibility. Submission is an inner attitude. Write that down. Submission is an inner attitude and, and, and disposition. Now watch this tonight. Submission is a choice. Nobody forces you to submit. Submission is a choice. I'm not going to force you to submit, but it might mean if you have a submission problem, you're just not going to have areas of influence. Amen? Amen? 
Okay? You're just going to have areas of influence. It's not, you come in and do what you want, hoping that you're going to get recognition. That's not how God's church works. I mean, God has the order that he has as we study through all of the New Testament and the Old Testament there. So, you know, we submit, we, we submit or do not submit. We obey or do not obey. We follow or do not follow. Submission is a voluntary decision on my part and your part to yield our will in life to one as a God-appointed authority in our life. Children, listen, you're to obey your parents. If you're at home, you're to obey your parents. You're to listen to your parents. Parents, you need to step up and not let your kids run the house. You need to step up and say, listen, this is how things are done. It's good to have family time with that. Now, consider that me with Abner. Go back to Abner for just a minute because we're looking at the principle here. Abner had no problem submitting to the leadership of David, right? I mean, th- th- did you see any problem there? Yes or no? Talk to me. Yes or no? No problem, right? He said, now I'm going to, he said in verse 21 of chapter 3, now I'm going to lead all of Israel to come to you. I mean, he was, he's excited. He's enthused. He not, really wasn't sure what the vision was. He really wasn't sure what was going to follow. Just he knew one thing. God had his hand on David. I don't have a problem with that. I've been following the wrong king and I've got to get everybody that I've misled. I've got to get them right on the right page and get them in the right direction. And he used his influence in the right way for that. Abner had everything in motion. Abner got stopped short. Abner for 42 years followed Saul. Listen, Abner, listen to me tonight. Abner let go of his perceptions. And he had 42 years of bad perceptions about David. Abner got rid of his paranoias. And he had 42 years of paranoias. He got rid of his preferences. And he realized that submission needed to be a complete yieldedness to David's authority. And that's what we read in chapter 3. Abner's giving a complete yieldedness of his, of his attitude, his heart, to David here. And so he gave it all. But when he died... Some people had not come to that place in their life where they were ready to submit. And so now we get Bayanah and we get, we get Rechab, his brother, and they're saying, well, we're going to fill the void and we're going to fill the vacuum there. And we're going to see that in a moment. Now look at, look at secondly, letter A, we saw the principle. Letter B, consider the priority. Now go back to first Peter, if you would. Now first Peter helps you and me about submission. He breaks down in easy, understandable terms what submission. Please follow me tonight. This will help you in understanding 1 Timothy 2 and 3. First of all, notice the entities involved in submission. You'll notice here he breaks down several entities. First of all, in chapter 2, verses 13 to 14, there is submission to civil authorities. I'm going to read it very quickly. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, for the praise of them that do well. Now, Peter is voicing what Paul takes a little bit more time to talk about in Romans chapter 13. But we are to be in submission to civil authority. We're to follow the laws and the rules of the land. Number two, look at chapter two, verses 18 to 20. How many of you work a job? You have a manager, supervisor, somebody you're accountable to. Raise your hand. You have a job, okay? So you, most of us in the room, okay? You have somebody you're accountable to. Now watch this, okay? In chapter 2, verse 18, verse 20, we see submission to employers. I got a bad boss. I've been around a little bit. Sometimes it's not a bad boss. It's a bad employee. You read verse 18, it says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the forward. For this is thankworthy of a man for conscience towards God, endure grief, suffer You know what he's talking about in verse 18? Verse, verse 19 there? Uh, about, about this, about this is thankworthy of a man for conscience towards God, endure grief. You know what he's talking about? Hey, during those days, people's wages got changed. They didn't have labor laws. They didn't have unions. They had guilds, but they didn't have unions. 
their, their, their wages got changed. They didn't get, they didn't get paid. They were, they were, they, 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 I mean, employees were mistreated. If you think the workforce is bad today, it was bad back then. And he's telling these Christians, listen, you're saved, and you're a slave, and this is your master, and he didn't pay you, he mistreated you, and maybe he's abused and things like that. He says, look at this, this, and he says, you need to have, you need to serve them with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the poor, for this is thankworthy of a man for conscience towards God, endure grief, suffering wrongfully. And he talks about our testimony in that context there. So there's submission to civil authority, there's submission to employers. Notice chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. There's submission to marriage. Christian wives were cited that they felt a liberty through Jesus Christ. And there are two extremes. There were women that had been, basically women were very ill-treated, mistreated during those days. And there were those who felt a sense of liberty. Basically, I don't have to listen to my husband anymore because Jesus is my Lord. Well, you're half right, but you're a lot of wrong, Okay. Jesus is your Lord, but that doesn't mean you ignore your husband and so forth. And then there's the extreme of those, as we see in chapter 3, verse 1, who basically, they thought they were preachers, they preached their husband's death. you got to get saved, you got to get saved. And Peter's getting wind of all these things going on because they're, because you read chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, there was a submission problem in the home, not just of the wife to the husband, but also the husband to the wife. You say, whoa, pastor, husbands submit themselves to the wife? Yes, guys, husbands are supposed to listen to their wives. Husbands are to realize it's not 100% me, 0% her. We need to understand that marriage is a, if I can say this in the right way, is a partnership. Marriage is a, in a context, there's some things our wives might have a little bit more insight, a little bit more wisdom about. They may help some of us who happen to be very impulsive to slow down a little bit and consider. They may help us who are hotheads not to say something that will get us into trouble. And so he's talking about, he tells in first six verses about the importance of women being submissive. And he's talking about their submission in the context of their character. Notice verse 4, chapter 3, verse 4. But let it be the hidden man of the heart. And that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. And then he draws them back to Sarah and talking about how Sarah called Abraham Lord. Because, by the way, I had to tell you this, but Sarah, up until she realized that, that the Messiah, that, that, that uh, not the Messiah, but uh, Isaac was going to be born through her, she had a hard time submitting to Abraham. And we find that over in Genesis 16. She subverted his leadership. You get to Genesis 18, you find she's recorded there. She calls him Lord. And so now we get to chapter 3, verse 7, and he tells all these things, and the men are going there, yeah, go ahead, preacher, come on, Peter, preach it on, tell those women they need to submit to our leadership, tell them they've got to do this, and they've got to do that, and then he drops a bomb in one verse, in verse 7, which is a catch-all for every man, and every man who comes, every marriage that comes into my office, they've got to talk to him about something, I'll listen to them, and we'll talk about submission, then when I drop verse 7 down, the men get very mad at me, and they look at me like, man, you're not on my side anymore, are you? I never was on your side, I'm on God's side, Amen. And he says, likewise, he has, what's the word likewise mean? Hey, see, so he's saying, I'm continuing the same line of thought I started on in verses 1 to 6. He says, and I'm not just applying it to the women. He says, guys, you have a responsibility here too. And he says, likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor to the wife as unto a weaker vessel, and he's being heirs together the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Now, you listen to me tonight. If your prayers are not being answered, husband and wife, it's because you're not on the same page. 
And I want to tell you tonight, the worst thing you could do to your marriage if you're, is that you're, you have constant conflict, constant dysfunction, constant fighting. Christ is not Lord of your home. Listen, if it's like that, it might be, first of all, men, you need to take responsibility to ask yourself this question. Am I giving honor to my wife as into the weaker vessel and is being heirs together the grace of life? Heirs together the grace of life means Jesus Christ's blood was shed the same for you and for her. It's not less for her and more for you. It's the same blood. You're both heirs together the grace of life. You both ought to thank God that you're saved. You both ought to thank God that you can give glory to God. And he's saying here, the reason why your prayers are not being answered, your kids are not getting saved, your kids are running off somewhere, might be because you're both not on the same page, either because of a non-submissive wife, or more importantly, for a husband who doesn't realize he's not, doesn't recognize his wife. Wow, that's pretty powerful. We're not done yet. He's it with submission and employment, submission or civil authority, submission and marriage. But notice chapter 2, verse 17. Submission within the body of Christ. What are are you talking about, Pastor? Honor all men. Let let me say something tonight. The church does not exist as a hierarchy. That's the Catholic Church. There are no hierarchies. Okay? And he says, honor all men. Now, we're to give deference and submission we better be careful that we're not thinking that I'm above everybody else here. He says, honor all men. Notice this. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. And then he goes down to chapter 3. He continues on the same thought, beginning in verse 8, all the way down to verse 13 in chapter 3. He says in chapter 3, verse 8, finally, he continues the same thought of submission. Finally, he says in verse 8, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren. Be pitiful. Be courteous. Not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarized blessing, knowing that there unto you are called that you should inherit a blessing. Hey, listen, there's supposed to be submission within the body of Christ. There's not one ministry preferred over another. And we shouldn't be wrangling over territories and wrangling over privileges and thinking we get this privilege or we get this and we get that. That should not exist there. There needs to be a mutual submission within the body of Christ. But notice something else, chapter 5. Notice verses 1 to 5. Submission to civil authorities, submission in employment, submission in our marriages, submission within the body of Christ. Hey, submission to pastoral leadership. That's tough. Who's this guy think he is anyway to get up there and preach away and tell me how I'm supposed to live my life? And yet, notice Peter, he's dealing with pastors that are kind of, in verse 1, that, that, are, that are kind of unsure about their job description from God and unsure what they're supposed to be doing. And he's reminding the guys, you know, as a pastor, you need to remember, and I speak to you as a pastor because he was the first pastor of the church of Jerusalem. He said, the elders which are among you, I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also partake of the glory that shall be revealed. He said, feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not a for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. And you know what he's telling there? If you read First Peter 5, he gives a description of the responsibilities of the pastor. He uses words very critically that are used in 1 Timothy 3, 1 Timothy 4, and also in, in Acts chapter 20. He talked about the fact of the maturity of the office of the pastor. And then he talked about the fact of the oversight or the leadership of the pastor. And then he talked about the shepherding responsibility of the pastor. He's to feed the flock of God, which is the mother. Listen, don't come to church with the idea I'm going to get bored. Come to church to get your soul fed with the word of God. Amen? He says, that's what pastor is supposed to do. And why is he saying all that? Well, anytime the scriptures give attention to something, it's one of two things. One, it's for instruction. Number two, because there's something missing. And there is both this. So we're looking here now. 
the entities. But you notice the example. Go back to chapter 2, 1 Peter. We have a minimum of five entities that biblically we are to be in submission to. In other words, we're to yield our control to. We're to yield to. And then Peter, this is only the Holy Spirit could do this, brings Jesus into the picture. Isn't that great when Jesus gets in the picture, amen? Jesus is in the picture. Notice verse 23. He tells in verse 21 where to follow his steps. Charles Sheldon wrote a book about that, I think, in his steps, something like that. And a lot of us get hung up on verse 21. And I'll be done in a minute. But we, we don't read verse 23. Please watch verse 23. Who when he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. And notice this next phrase. But committed himself to him that judges righteously. Now watch this. Peter's talking about submission. And as he talks about submission to government authorities, he talks about submission to employment, he talks about submission to uh, within the body of Christ, and then after that he talks about submission in our marriages, and again within the body of Christ, and, and then again about pastoral authority. Notice right in the middle of all that. Right in the middle of all that, he talks about Jesus, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. In other words, he was spat upon, he was, he was cursed, he was chewed out, he was cussed out. He didn't respond, he didn't retaliate to that. When he suffered, he threatened not. But he committed himself unto him that judgeth all righteously. What does the word committeth mean? It's a much stronger word than the word hupotasso. Committeth this means when Christ had to die on the cross, he said, Father... Not my will, but thine be done. Here am I, hands off. No resistance. No, 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 no fighting. No reviling. Why do I have to do that? No, he committed himself who judges righteousness. I, my hands are off. You have complete control in this matter. Hey, listen, as we study the matter of submission, I think many times when it's taught and preached on most of our independent Baptist churches, it's kind of glossed over. And nobody wants to look at 1 Peter 2.23 and realize if we're following the steps of the Lord Jesus Christ in the matter of submission, submission means this. I may not agree with everything. Our personalities might be different. Our philosophies might be a little bit different. But when we get down to all of that, the difference is are always preferences, paranoias, or, or whatever there, and they never have to do with doctrine. So he says, look at Jesus. When it was time for him to give his life, he committed himself to judge us all righteously, and he said, hands off, it's all yours, Jesus. All yours, God. I have no say in this. I'm giving myself as a lamb to the slaughter, as Isaiah 53 would say, amen? That's what he did. So we see the example And by the way, he said hands off because he had confidence. Notice in verse 23, he had confidence and trust that God makes no mistakes. Amen. It's him that judges all righteousness. God doesn't make any mistakes. God knows what he's doing. We see the entities in this party. We see the example of these parties. Notice the ex- exhortation of these priorities. Now we're exhorted. We're encouraged to have a spirit of submission. We're going to... Paul this together and go back to see Bana and, and, and Rechab in a minute. Number one, if you notice verse 20, chapter 2, verse 21, we must follow Christ's steps in submission. 
we must commit ourselves in verses 21 to 24 of 1 Timothy 2, 1 Peter 2, in the same way Jesus did to commit ourselves unto him who judged all rightly. We may not be all together there based on our personality, but we're to commit ourselves, say, hands off, I'm not going to fight and fuss in this matter, I'm not going to give my opinion on this thing. He's gonna, we're to submit ourselves in that context. Then notice chapter 2, verse 15. Did you notice the will of God for us to submit? For so is the will of God. That with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish. It is the will of God that we're to be submission to these different authorities God has placed in life. Why? God knows that if we don't have, we're not in submission that we have civil unrest there. It is the will of God that we submit. Notice something else. He says here in the same verse of scripture, in verse 16, we are to submit out of liberty, not out of malice or with an underhanded attitude. Whoa! Rechab and Bainah did it with an underhanded attitude. In submission, we're to accept the hardships in submission. Submission's not easy. Why? Because you've got a tough husband. We're to accept the hardships in submission because this is a means by which God's grace works in our life. You say, how do you know that? I want you to circle two words with me. Notice chapter 2, verse 19. Notice, circle the word thankworthy. And then I want you to go down and I want you to notice to see here. I want you to notice, circle the word uh, acceptable in verse 20. Now, if you look those words up, you know what those words are? They're the Greek words charis. You know what charis means? Grace. For this is the great grace of God is what he's saying there. Verse 19, he says, for this is the grace of God. If a man for conscience towards God endure grief, suffer wrong. You know why God puts hardship in our lives? We're not going to learn the grace of God. His strength can't not be made perfect in our weakness unless we have hardships in our life. That strength is made perfect. That's why he's grace to say. It's not just when there's a death, not when a sorrow. Listen, some of you are going through some hardships right now with some relationships and people and things that are out of your control. And he's telling us here in verse 19, for this is thankworthy of a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. You're not, you're, you haven't done anything wrong, but you're suffering because of that. He said, why? Because God wants to work his grace in your life. Then he says in verse 21, verse 20. What glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your fault, you shall take it patiently. But if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently. He said, this is the grace of God. This is acceptable to God. You know what God's saying there? He knows our submission's hard. We haven't worked out all the preferences. We haven't worked out all the paranoias. But God says, in spite of all those things, we're not to sit there and plan and manipulate and do our own thing. He says, we're realizing he exhorts us. It's the will of God. He exhorts us that we're not to do it out of liberty, not out of malice. He exhorts us to do it because it's the right thing. He exhorts us to do it because that's how we have civility. And he exhorts us to do it because God's grace is at work in our life. Amen? So watch what happens here now. Let's go back to 2 Samuel 4. We're almost going to draw this all together. The precept submission, we've seen the principle... We've seen the priority. Now go back to 2 Samuel 4. Would you notice this tonight? And we're almost done. Write this down. Notice the perversion. Notice the perversion of submission. 2 Samuel 4. The basic human nature is to resist authority. It happens at birth. The sinful nature is always in rebellion or bending the rules to fit what we want to say or do. I believe rebellion is one of the sins of youth that David talks about in Psalms 25. 
It's a sin of youth that we didn't get victory over and we take into our adult life. The biggest struggle from the day of your birth and my birth is to submit to authority. The biggest struggle as an adult or as a member of this church is someone who has a response is, 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 is to submit to the authority of someone else who has authority over us. Now watch this. Bain and recap or picture the perversion of, of submission. They pervert the matter of submission. God put that here in Scripture for us to understand as we contrast Bain and recap, as we contrast them to Abner. We understand something here. Abner represents to us a picture of, of surrendered leadership of, of him who committed himself, uh, who committed himself to him who judges all righteously. But Bain and recap do not. Bain and recap representatives a perversion of them. Watch, how do you know that? Notice some things here tonight. Baina's name means afflicted or to afflict. Baina's name, very name, means that he probably afflicted other people. His personality was he was a troublemaker. He afflicted others. He always had another opinion. Recub's name means a rider. Recub went along for the ride. Recub was a necessary one who initiated something, but if somebody else started something, he'd get on the bandwagon. Listen tonight, it's always wrong to follow a multitude to do evil. 2,000 people have jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge. That doesn't mean you should jump off the Golden Gate Bridge. Amen? It's always wrong to fall a multitude to do evil. Listen, Rechab was a writer. He went on for the ride. That was his brother. He would not have done this himself. But, but uh, Bayonah was one who afflicted others. He was a troublemaker. And he, caused, and he wanted to exert some things. So he talked to Rechab. He said, this is what we're going to do. And the two of them together, they wanted to cause grief and, and, and in this situation. So now they conspired to come to David on their own terms. Their goal was to be rewarded. Their goal was to retain the same roles or to even be promoted by David because David saw right through that. Why? Because David was a soldier. He knew how soldiers think. He knew what soldiers wanted. He saw mercenary all over their lives. They wanted to be rewarded. They wanted to be promoted. They they were very aware of Abner's movements to get Israel to submit under David's hand. However, they came to David under what I call a perverted submission. Now, I want you to notice two statements here that these men make. Go down with me here in chapter 4. And in verse 8, I want you to notice two statements they make because they're two very remarkable statements. They brought the head of Israel. This is their trophy. They didn't bring it. They brought it as a trophy. They said, David, this is what you want. That's not what David wanted. By the way, taking other people out in order to prove submission is never pleasing to God. Amen? Taking other people out along the way is never pleasing to God. And we have it all throughout Scripture there. So you notice the situation. They take the head of Ishbosheth unto David to Hebrew and said to the king, Behold the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, the enemy which sought thy life. You know when they did that to David? What a low, ungodly, ignorant view they had of the character of David. Surely, David, you would have approved of us killing Ishbosheth. Surely, David, your character is like our character. They, they had that low view. By the way, tonight, listen, a lot of our trouble we have in our Christian life, it all deals with what do we know about Jesus? What do we think about Jesus? Statement number two. The Lord has avenged my Lord the King this day of Saul and of his seed. Wait a minute. Did the Lord commission those men? Did David tell them to do that? They had not been in the camp of David till they came that day with the head of Ishbosheth. 
Is that what David really wanted them to do? They said, the Lord this day has avenged our Lord, the king, this day of Saul and his seed. You know what these men were doing? They portrayed what they did as being saints to the Lord. Now listen to me tonight, I'm almost done. Putting a twist or different appearance on sin never changes sin. You can put a different twist on it, you can color code it, you can sugarcoat it, you can change it, but it doesn't change the appearance of sin. Watch tonight where our society's gone. Drunkenness is called alcoholism or disease. No, drunkenness is a sin. Well, look at the Bible. It's called a sin of the flesh. It's listed as drunkenness. It is not alcoholism. It's not a disease. And I'm not unsympathetic to people who have that trouble there. But drunkenness is called a sin. Sodomy is called a genetic inheritance. It is not a genetic inheritance. Sodomy is a sin, brother and sister in Christ. Adultery is called an affair. It's not an affair. It's wrong. It's a sin. Fornication, whoredom is called premarital, extramarital relations. We sugarcoat these things around. Putting a different twist on sin does not change sin. Putting a twist on our deeds to get someone to think what we're doing is okay may sound okay to somebody who doesn't know the Word of God. But we have to understand that doesn't please God. Covering another person's good or another person's spouse is twisted as the Lord led me in this relationship. I mean, how many of us have been in this situation? We read of a story of someone who got out of their marriage and got into something else. He said, well, the Lord led me to this marriage. The Lord did not lead you to that marriage. Your own lust led you into that situation there. Put a different twist on the lying is called misrepresenting the facts. Sowing discord among the brethren is called relationship challenges. Gossip is called privileged information. And listen, putting a twist on things like these men did, they actually took the name of the Lord in vain in this passage. And they said, the Lord has avenged my Lord, the King, this day of Saul. God did not do that. God did not sanction. I'm saying tonight, a lot of times we try to make up reasons or quite a sanctify what we're doing. We put a twist on things by saying that's what God did. Listen, I'll remind you tonight, the leopard does not change its spots and sin is still sin. So notice how David exposes the perversion of their submission. Look at verse 10 again. When one told me, saying, Behold, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good tidings. Now, they came under false pretense and they had this perception, David certainly must be glad that Saul is dead. And we're going to come with this pretense. He said, certainly, they said, behold, Saul thinking to have brought good tidings. The Bible tells in Proverbs, if you rejoice when your enemy falls, God is not pleased with that. Our hearts should be smitten and broken when something happens to anybody. Then he says in verse 10 there, they said that, he says, Behold, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good tidings. I took hold of him, slew him in Ziglag, who thought I would have given him a reward for his tidings. David said, what you guys are doing is wicked. He said in verse 11, how much more when a wicked man have slain a righteous person in his own house upon his bed. So what does this all mean? Submission is an inner attitude. A lot of us, our submission is kind of like the little boy that got in a conflict with his mother. And he pushed her button the wrong way. You ever have a kid push your button the wrong way? Amen. And she says, Billy, you stand in that corner until I tell you to get out of that corner. And after a few minutes, she went up to him and she said, what are you thinking, Billy? He said, Mom, I'll tell you this. I'm standing, he said, she said, go sit, she said, she said, uh, uh, she actually told him to sit in the corner. She said, well, I'm sitting on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. And a lot of us are like that attitude when, when we cannot 
get our submission in alignment with what the Lord wants, we may be sitting down on the outside, but on the inside we're sitting up. Our inner attitude is we can't get ourselves to be in submission to the things of God there. He's basically saying here, he's saying, I will obey, but I will not submit. Submission must be with all our heart. That's what we're saying tonight. Submission must be with all our heart. We can't change the rules. We can't change the scripture. We can't change the picture to make it look like we're in submission. We've got to change our attitude and hearts. And this, that's why when you read through the passage of scripture tonight, it's about a change of heart, a change of attitude. Bayonah and Rechab never changed their heart. They came with the intention. They get a promotion. It never happened. David saw right through them. By the way, God sees through and eventually catches up with us. So tonight we look at this and we see these men. We see the, we see the principle. We see the priorities. We see the perversion. Notice in chapter four, verse 13, the penalty. This is pretty gruesome, but there's a, there's a message behind it. David slays these men for what they did. It's capital punishment, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. But David is something that's very frightening. He severed their hands and severed their feet. He hung their hands and feet over a pool in Hebron where people had to pass by to see these hanging hands and feet. That's pretty gruesome. Why did he do that? Well, I remember somewhere in the Bible, somewhere in Proverbs chapter 6, it talked about seven things the Lord's hate. And two of those things he talked about, hands that shed innocent blood and feet that are sweet, uh, swift and running to mischief. And I think as he looked at those men, hands that shed innocent blood and, and feet that are, that are swift and running to mischief, he was giving us an Old Testament foreshadowing of what Matthew chapter 18 and 1 Corinthians 5 talks about in the matter of church discipline. He's saying, look, we're, I hate to do this, but we've got to make a, we've got to publicly display here, in, which was a humiliation to those men who are already dead. We have to show that this is, this, this does not have the blessing of God, that does not have God's pleasure. And you can imagine as Israel was at this place where people needed to come to David, there was a fear of God that was instilled in all of the Israelites who needed to come over to David or those who had come, but they were still undecided in the heart. As they looked at those hanging hands and, hang, and hanging feet, they thought about what Psalm would write about later on, which is part of Jewish life. Hands that shed innocent blood and feet that be swift and running to mischief. They thought about the fact, man, I don't want that to happen to me. I don't want to be an example of someone who could not submit. I don't want to be an example of someone who is insubordinate. And as you read through the scripture, you realize God does not look very favorably on the fact when there's submission problems in our marriage. Submission problems to the government, submission problems in our employment, submission problems within the church, submission problems within the body of Christ. God does not look very favorably on those things, brothers and sisters of Christ. So as we close, go back to 1 Peter 5, which you notice the promotion, and we're done. Submission is mandated conduct for every Christian, but it's a choice. You have to choose. I have to choose. But you notice some things tonight. As we go back to 1 Peter 2, 3, 4, and 5, and I'm done. Notice how God promotes this precept and this virtue of submission. When submission is present, there are results that are blessed of God. Would you notice chapter 3, chapter 2, excuse me, verses 15 and 16. In chapter 2, verses 15 to 16, notice the Bible tells us here very simply, our Christian testimony is good. Where submission is present, there is a good Christian testimony. For so is the will of God that with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Why? Because the lost people are doing that. Are you different than the lost people? 
Is Christ in control of your life? Our Christian testimony is evident, uh, is evident there. Notice something else, verse, chapter 2, verses 18 to 20. We please God in the workplace. He tells us here, this is thankworthy. This is the grace of God. He says in verse 20, what glory is it? If ye be uh, buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently. He's telling us we're doing well. We're getting the grace of God to work in our life. Notice chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. We have the blessing of marital bliss. God blesses our marriages. Our prayers are answered. Listen, husbands and wives, listen, everything you do now for your marriage prepares you for that trial that may come, that difficult may come when you need to pray together and get you past this place of living with unconfessed sin in your lives and realizing you want to be on the same page with God and being on the same page with God enables you to pray together. Why? Because we have the promise in Matthew 18 where two or more are gathered in my name, there am I also in the midst with them. And listen, God wants to bless whatever is agreed upon on earth shall be agreed upon in heaven. God says here there's the blessing of, of marital bliss. And then notice in chapter 3, verse 7 and chapter 3, verse 12, when we look at this promotion where submission is present, which you notice in verse 7 and verse 12, chapter 3, we're almost done. Would you notice here, there's the blessing of answered prayer for the body of Christ. David did not want people coming in with a twisted submission. God does not want you and I coming to him trying to find our own way, trying to get a reward or to power wrangle, get some recognition. God wants the people of God to come with them with a pure heart and inner attitude where we're not sitting down on the outside and sitting, standing up on the inside. And so we ask the question then, well, pastor, that's all good, but pastor, that's hard to do. And you know what? You're right. It is hard to do. How am I going to do that? And even right now inside, or maybe inside of us, something boiling, say, I can't do it. Go to 1 Peter 5 and notice as we close tonight what he says here. <clears throat> Verses 5 and 6, he, chapter 5 of 1 Peter, the Lord encourages us about the promotion of biblical submission, of yielding one to another. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Now, who are the elder? The elder he's talking about are the, the, the pastoral leadership, spiritual leaders of the church. And there's conflict among the younger and the older. I'll give you an example of that in the contemporary church movement. Why, why this explosion for the last 30 years with contemporary music and blended services? And you go to these contemporary churches, they have a, they have a contemporary service, which is basically a glorified rock or rap concerts, what it is. And then you say, well, you don't want to go there. You can come to our traditional service where we sing the hymns. Why, why is it happening? The re- very simple reason, verse 5, here, there's conflict between the younger. The younger submit, are supposed to submit themselves to the elder. But the elder, instead of realizing their biblical role responsibility of training them and teaching them and mentoring them and encouraging them along the way, they basically said, well, so we don't, can have harmony within the church. We'll have split service. You just split the church. You just didn't tell the church you split the church. Amen? So you look at chapter 5 here, and he says, likewise, you younger, submit yourself to the other. Hey, listen, you can watch the evolution of things that happen in, in, in a church. You know, when you're in high school, you follow the sponsors and the pastors. You're gung-ho. You listen to what they say. Now you get to college, and you've got a little more knowledge, and you're in power with a little more responsibility, and you're independent, and you've got money, and you've got your own car, and you've got a job, and you're becoming more independent and mature. And then the big day comes. You graduate from college, and you get your diploma, and you get your diploma, and you walk the aisle, and you walk across the platform, and you get a job, and that first First job is not the job where you want to be. And you work your way around. And thank God today for all the tools that help people to get better jobs. But now, 
You get a really good job and a well-paying job. And now you've matured, if I can use that term, you've matured to where you are independent and, and you are beyond authority and nobody tells you what to do. And all of a sudden, the same people that you had a great respect for, you see the flaws in their life, you see the flaws in their leadership, you see flaws in your parents, and all of a sudden you're not as in agreement and you're button heads and bucking heads and button heads and so forth there. And so now we go to First Peter chapter 5. The younger who are young adults and uh, who are basically in this scenario, they're having a trouble submitting themselves to one another and submitting themselves to the elder. And here's Peter's solution. Likewise, you younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility for God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to humble. Here's the number one reason why we have submission problems. We're too proud. I'm too proud. You're too proud. And I think one of the reasons why people Pull out of service. Stop coming to services. Pull out things. Because there's this mission problem. You know what the Lord wants you to do. But my name's Baina. My name's Rekab. And man, you don't understand. I, I've got a position here. I'm still a captain over band. And I don't want to lose my role. Responsibility. Listen tonight. Don't forget this. A man can receive nothing except to be given him by God. He must increase and I must decrease. And John the Baptist, if you study his ministry, he was the place where he had this height. And listen, he started putting, pushing his ministry away and pushing it away. Listen, why? He was giving glory to Jesus Christ. He came to the day where Jesus and his disciples were baptizing more. By the way, some of you didn't know that. Jesus did baptize. He was baptizing more than the disciples of John. And people were saying, well, there's something wrong. There was nothing wrong with that picture. That was what God wanted him to do in the beginning there. So notice he says here, likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves to the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another. Be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Notice as we close tonight, humble yourselves therefore under what? The mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. What's your challenge there? You're not submitting in your power. Submit yourself under the mighty hand of God. Roger Staubach was a very famous quarterback during my day growing up, and he played for the Dallas Cowboys. Some of you people can date yourself. Remember Roger Staubach. During those days, he played for the Dallas Cowboys. Well, a lot of us forget that Roger Staubach called very few plays. In fact, I'm not even sure if he called any plays. They had a great coach back at that time who was a Christian, a man who was a genius of a coach. And his name, if you remember, was Tom Landry. And Tom Landry would call the plays, and Roger Staubach, man, if you remember, he played for the Naval Academy, I and mean, he was a good quarterback. I mean, he was all-star and everything there. And listen, he was Pro Bowl, all those things there. And there came a time where Roger Staubach was having a lot of difficulty being under the leadership of Tom Landry and not being able to call his own plays. He saw it a little bit differently than the coach, but the coach was always right. And he came to the place, he realized, I'm not going to be happy on this team. This team is not going to be a championship team unless I learn to put myself and to yield myself under the direction, the leadership of Coach Landry. And when he did, guess what? You look back at the archives. The Dallas Cowboys were a pretty good team back at that time. Bain and Rekub. Right before them, they had an opportunity to pledge a submission to the king who was a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. They came under the pretense of thinking he would be pleased. They took somebody else that was innocent out so they can get a reward. They get a promotion. We recognize in the end, they were recognized as men whose feet were swift to running to mischief and hands that shed innocent blood. They were publicly displayed as someone who couldn't follow. I say tonight, this evening, God put 2 Samuel 4 there for you and me. 
to understand the principle of submission. There are some entities we need to submit to. There's a spirit we need to submit to. And the question God has to deal with your heart and in my heart, are you submissive? Can you follow? Lord, tonight, thank you for 2 Samuel 4 and the principles of submission that's found in the Scriptures. And this evening, Lord, more and more of a teaching-type message. But very powerfully, it pulls off the Scriptures tonight. A precept that is often ignored, often left out, and often not thought about. Now, Lord, you know our hearts tonight. And I pray as we give the invitation, we claim what the psalmist said in Psalms 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. And try me and see if there be any wicked way. David called it what it was. He said these were wicked men because they came under the wrong idea. I pray this evening we've got a myriad of things that maybe we've had to think about tonight. Submission to civil authority. Submission in employment. Submission in our marriages. Submission within the body of Christ. Submission to spiritual leadership in the local church. It's not easy, Lord. It's really hard. But you tell us to humble ourselves there in front of the mighty hand of God. That you would exalt us into now. You'll give us the strength and the grace and the help tonight. Though the message tonight is not asking anyone to confess, and though the message tonight was not just to enlighten us, the message is tonight, a reminder tonight, that a lot of times we might be sitting down on the outside, but standing up in defiance on the inside. Father, please help us tonight. Perhaps a button was touched. I pray it was. About our inner attitude, about our heart. As we look at the principles, the priority, the perversion, the penalty, and the promotion of of, of submission, Lord. Please have your way tonight as families come, individuals come. As we come together, may God you be glorified, we pray. If someone here tonight is not sure they're saved, before they leave tonight, I pray they'd accept your son, Jesus Christ, as personal Savior. Have thine own way now, we pray in Jesus' name.